If you like what you hear on the Security Ledger podcast, you might want to check out one of our cybersecurity newsletters like the Daily Ledger or the Weekly Ledger. You can sign up for them at securityledger.com slash subscribe. Hello, and welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, the editor-in-chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode number 84, February is Black History Month in the United States, during which we all stop to recognize the many and varied contributions that black men and women have made to our country. This month, Security Ledger is taking the opportunity to interview some prominent black professionals in information security. We're going to start with Corey Thomas, the chief executive officer at the firm Rapid7, who talks about his path to the top of the information security field. But first, right to repair bills are circulating in state houses across the country as consumer advocates seek to ensure basic tenants in law, such as the right of owners, researchers, and independent repair shops to take apart and fix connected devices. Blocking that effort is an imposing obstacle. The Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA, originally conceived as a way to protect movies, video games, and music from software piracy, the DMCA has expanded along with a number of software-controlled objects in our environment, and it's now used to limit the rights of farmers to repair their own farm equipment, independent repair shops to replace parts in smartphones and other appliances, and of individuals to install and run their own software and applications on a wide range of devices that they purchase. In our first segment, we invited Cory Doctorow of the Electronic Frontier Foundation in to talk about the latest front in that war, voice assistants such as Amazon's Echo and Google Home. As Security Ledger reported last week, the EFF is seeking an exemption to the DMCA covering the devices. In this podcast, Corey explains to us why his group is focused on those devices in particular and what winning an exemption for voice assistance might mean for the rest of the Internet of Things. My name is Corey Doctorow, and I'm a special consultant to the Electronic Frontier Foundation. In the past, you guys have won exemptions for phones and tablets, farm equipment. Why in particular voice assistance? And as long as we're grabbing Google Home and Amazon Echo up in this net, um, why not uh, all the other smart connected home appliances um, that are out there? The short answer is that like, we need to rely on fact and evidence. So we need to have people who've tried to jailbreak these things and been frustrated them, by them so that we can talk about their, that, you know, like this isn't a theoretical harm, it's an actual harm. We have limited resources. And I think the thinking was, that because these are intended as hubs, that jailbreaking them gave you an enormous amount of flexibility over all those other devices. I mean, obviously, you really, we really, really need a security exemption. We've applied for a separate security exemption for all classes of devices uh, so that we can audit those things. Because, you know, as everyone knows, the Internet of Things is this giant insecure dumpster fire of devices manufactured by companies with like six months of VC runway who are not in profit and who have like two possible outcomes, either they get acquired, uh, in which case the data that they breach through their bad security becomes, you know, Google's problem or Apple's problem, or they go out of business, in which case it's the customer's problem, but it'll never be their problem. Mm -hmm. And so we have this uh, universe of badly secured gadgets with cameras and microphones that we strut around naked in front of and discuss the most sensitive things (laughs) in our lives 
that we, you know, entrust with our medical information and everything you need to impersonate us to our bank in order to sell our house out from under us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like all of that stuff, not to mention, you know, they're, they're all uh, insecure enough that they can be compromised by um, really crummy IOT worms written by dum-dums who are trying to create, you know, um, uh, uh, protection rackets for Minecraft who turn out to make like super weapons that take the entire world hostage with, with crazy DOSing. Um, but, uh, you know, we, so we need to be able to audit all of those devices. Uh, but I, I think that the lawyers this time around just said we don't have the, the bandwidth to ask for a use exemption that would allow you to modify the firmware once you discover these defects. And, to, um, and, and so, you know, at, at least for the next three years, you're reliant on the, uh, the manufacturer once they've been embarrassed by the security researchers pointing out the defects in their products. Then, then you have to rely on them eventually coming around and saying, well, we've got some alternative firmware for you. What would allowing uh, individuals to jailbreak these devices and, of course, permitting them to use third-party tools to do it, um, in your mind, how would that change a relationship between consumers and these, you know, increasingly popular devices? Uh, you know, CES just happened and, you know, voice assistants were all the mm-hmm. rage at CES. So how would it change a, the fundamental relationship between the consumer and the device? So I, I think that we can break all security problems and all prescriptions about curing technological ills into two categories, the um, do that and the don't do that category. So the do that category is like, what is it that would make this more secure? You know, what are the best practices? What libraries should you issue? How should you protect memory and so on? And EFF takes no position on any of that stuff as a matter of course. We're not telling people how to implement things. We're not telling people how to make their things more secure. But we have a very strong view on what the minimum viable don't do that agreement should be. And the don't do that agreement should be that you should not stop people from revealing problems with devices. And you should not stop people from trying to fix those problems. So we don't know how they should fix them, and we don't know how they should discover the defects, but we think that if people find defects, that they should be allowed to tell other people about them, and once those defects are known, that people should be able to try things to fix them. Because, like, it, 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 you know, it may be that those problems are very hard to solve, but banning attempts at solving them is not helping. And so I think that, like, in a marketplace where... Uh, we allow firms and individuals and, you know, free software groups who just are like have a wiki and, and a, a GitHub repo to come together and propose solutions to gadgets that have problems with them or alternative firmwares that, uh, that patch or replace altogether the firmware that comes with the device so that uh, you can install apps that uh, unlock desirable capabilities for you or so that you can install firmware that, for example, takes stuff that would otherwise happen on some manufacturer's cloud and makes it local or puts it in a different cloud that, whose management uh, policies you are uh, more trusting of. I think that that opens up like at least a, a competitive marketplace for solutions. It, it is not a golden, it is not a silver bullet, right? Like, Markets can still end up producing bad outcomes, tools that are not fit for purpose, 
uh, products that uh, just should have never existed and that end up kind of proliferating before we discover that um, they're too dangerous to be used and we should get rid of them. You know, all of those things, that, that stuff can still happen in markets, right? You know, thalidomide was a marketed product that won success in the market. Mm -hmm. uh, but unless people can tell the truth about defects and unless people can offer solutions to those defects, then the defects will never be known. Customers will never demand better products, and that demand can never be answered by uh, other market forces, be they nonprofit or for-profit. Congress today. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned, I really love the way you talk about all the stuff that hasn't happened or that doesn't exist, because that's so hard to, for people to grasp, you know, the things that we could be enjoying the benefits of now that just were never created. But it is a real consequence of, of any law or set of regulations or restrictions. Um, I, I wonder, um, as we kind of move into this world in which so much of what we use and interact with on a day-to-day -day basis is software controlled. If we are going to see some pushback against this, you know, again, this law that was really created with kind of DVDs and VHS tapes and CDs in mind. I know that there are, for example, many state level right to repair laws, including in Massachusetts, where I am, uh, that are at least uh, being considered and debated. Uh, whether you see, you know, kind of a, a grassroots movement to to push back on that a little bit. Yeah, we're certainly hoping for that. You know, uh, we actually just released a, the, the first tranche of something called the Catalog of Missing Devices, which is a collection of advertisements and tutorials for using devices that should. So it's, it's pretty fun. As software becomes more pervasive, the opportunities to use the DMCA for mischief just multiply. I mean, honestly, there's, there's no conceptual difference between a device that uses an optical sensor to scan a barcode on a, uh, a print cartridge before it allows the printer to use it, and a toaster that does some machine learning-based analysis on the bread that you want to put into it to make sure that the bread has been authorized by the manufacturer, mm -hmm. or right. a, a dishwasher that checks for an RFID in your dishes to make sure that you've bought manufacturer-approved dishes to use in your dishwasher. And this kind of inkjetification of everything is yeah. a pretty dystopian future. And I think that, you know, um, as you say, these, these right to repair bills are showing the, the point at which the public's patience for this starts to wear thin. And one of the things that I think is going to happen is that the entertainment industry, which, which fought very hard for these laws and which from a kind of game theory perspective has a different use of them than say John Deere, right? John Deere has made one big bet on DRM. They want to make sure that they can use DRM to lock farmers out of their tractors so that they can charge extra for service. And they want to make sure that they can gather telemetry from those tractors, uh, like soil density surveys that are centimeter accurate, that are generated by the torque sensors on the wheels, and sell them into business intelligence uh, companies that are gathering regional uh, crop yield predictions for the futures market. And if the DMCA turns out to be invalid, for those purposes, they don't care if the DMCA is valid at all. Whereas the entertainment industry, they want to make sure that DRM is intact. Even if one particular DRM goes away, they're willing to let it go in order to preserve their right to use other DRMs. And so the, the um, right to repair bills are an interesting example because they, they're not allowed to give you the right to jailbreak. That's a, that's a federal uh, law and the states can't preempt it. But what they can do is say things like, 
if you make DRM, you have to provide unlocking keys for service centers. Or if you make DRM, or, or, or they could even say you're not allowed to use DRM. Or they could follow in the pattern that the um, uh, net neutrality bills at the, state law, at the state level have said, and they could say no state procurement is allowed to have uh, any DRM in it. So if you're buying, mm -hmm. like, you know, mm -hmm. the, the state's motor pool uh, has to be sourced from an auto manufacturer that doesn't use DRM to lock out independent repair. And at that point, you have this enormously powerful tool. And what I wonder is if we're going to end up in a situation where the entertainment industry starts to quietly support these initiatives as a way of diffusing the overall uh, case against DRM and the overall case for DMCA reform. Because, you know, we've seen DMCA reform bills drafted and even introduced in the past. They just, you know, don't get very far. They die on the order paper. But that, that needn't be the case forever. And as these kind of quote-unquote bad actors continue to make obvious and manifest the defects with the DMCA, yeah. the likelihood that one of those bills is going to get through becomes higher and higher. And so I think that there is a kind of, um, there's a wedge that can be driven between what's otherwise a very powerful and dangerous alliance between two different industrial interests to expropriate your property rights in favor of their investors. So what's next on this um, on this journey that you're on um, in terms of uh, winning the exemption for the voice assistance and what should my listeners be watching for? There's a couple of uh, things in play at the moment. So the, the first one is that we're waiting to hear about how our exemptions turn out. So the reply comments just came in from industry yesterday, and uh, we'll be posting some analysis from them soon. Last year, uh, John Deere was uh, dumb enough to write reply comments that effectively said uh, farmers don't own their tractors because the software is copyrighted and the software is transferred by license, not sale. The tractor isn't the farmer's property, which was the thing that made people pretty upset. And then, you know, like GM followed suit and filed their own comments to say you also don't own your GM. Uh, but then we file our own comments and reply. And, and I think next October we'll get a judgment. There's some hearings coming up in April, one set in D.C. at the beginning of April. And then in the middle of April, there's another set at UCLA. But the other thing that's happening is that we're suing the U.S. government to invalidate this law altogether. And we're doing it on behalf of a security researcher that your listeners may be familiar with. He's a very famous security researcher named Matthew Green, who works mm -hmm. at Johns Hopkins. Yep. And Matt has a, uh, a National Science Foundation grant and a book deal to in investigate the security of a bunch of devices that were explicitly excluded from the security research exemption in the last round. And so we think that he has standing to ask a federal court to tell him whether or not the law that prohibits him from doing this activity that he is otherwise planning on doing is constitutional. The basis of our constitutional challenge is twofold. One is that uh, in 1992, we, we won a lawsuit against the NSA uh, that struck down the ban on uh, creating and using strong cryptography. And we won it on the mm -hmm. basis that programmers have a right to publish source code, that source code is a form of expressive speech protected under the First Amendment. The other piece is that um, the Supreme Court it ruled in a case called Golan that copyright only passes constitutional muster if it limits itself to what's called the traditional contours, which is things like maps and games, photographs, paintings, books, uh, and so on, but not toasters that just happen to have a copyrighted work in them. You yeah, know, putting a you know putting a uh, painting a picture on the inside of a toaster doesn't make the toaster in a copyrighted work. So loading software in the toaster shouldn't make it a copyrighted work either. 
And we're also representing a legendary hardware hacker named Andrew Bunny Huang, who's probably best known for his work hacking the Xbox. But he's also, you know, he's done a lot of other things. He's um, an FPGA hacker. He's built a fully open, auditable computer. Every bit of firmware from the USB controllers and everything on the board uh, up is uh, is GNU. It's it's free software that has fully published source code, uh, and the hardware is open source hardware. So he's a he's a very interesting character, and he has a business uh, that uh, requires that he be allowed to bypass D, uh, HDCP, which is the DRM for videos. Uh, and it's in order to allow people to make fair uses of that video. So, for example, to allow media scholars to take excerpts from uh, DVDs for use in their classrooms. Uh, in, in another Supreme Court case, in Eldred, the Supreme Court said that copyright also can't pass First Amendment muster unless it allows for fair use. And so we think that because the DMCA uh, overrides the traditional contours and doesn't make exemptions for fair use, that the court should find in our favor and rule that any any uh, violation of the DMCA for the purposes of making fair use or for the purposes of uh, doing something that goes outside the traditional contour of copyright is lawful. And in, in that case, basically, DRM ceases to be really a viable business. And I think that would be a very uh, successful outcome. You know, it, it would still be usable to protect copyright. Now, as to what your listeners can do, uh, we are filing broad security exemption requests this year, uh, and we need stories of actual real-world people who have uh, tried to do security auditing and who've been prevented from publishing or from undertaking their research because of DRM. And in fact, any story about a legitimate activity that's blocked by DRM is useful in regulatory proceedings and in our court cases. And so you can get in touch with me, Corey at EFF.org, C-O-R-Y at EFF.org. And I would be happy to make you part of the way that we make the future better. The, the security research community has been a really powerful voice for understanding the defects in DRM and the problems, you know, overall with, with prohibiting people from investigating and reporting on, uh, on, on defects. And also, really, the security research community has been very good at helping us convey to lawmakers and others that security researcher is an activity, not a title, much like journalists. The way that, you know, there's often this question when we say security researchers should be free to publish their, their findings. The um, lawmakers or policymakers often say, well, how do we know if you're a legitimate security researcher? Mm -hmm. And our answer is you're a legitimate security researcher if you know about a defect mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. same way that you're a journalist if you're right. telling the truth. Right. right. And it's, it's not whether you work for Microsoft and it's not whether you work for F-Secure. It's what you're doing. It's an activity. And, you know, we stand ready to, to defend security researchers. We've been doing it since the earliest days. And we're very glad of, of your support uh, uh, from the security community. Corey, Dr. O, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. It was great to speak to you about the DMCA exemption for voice-activated assistance. Well, thank you very much. It was absolutely my pleasure. Hey, this is Paul from the Security Ledger. If you're hearing my voice now, it means that you're a loyal listener of the Security Ledger podcast. To thank you for listening, we've got a special Easter egg offering, a one-of-a-kind Security Ledger t-shirt with a cool custom IoT security-themed artwork. Quantities are limited. To get yours, just go to securityledger.com slash t-shirt and fill out the order form. We'll ship it to you, and be sure to include the special code to qualify for the order. That is 
SLT 2018. SLT as in Security Ledger. T as in T-shirt. 2018 as in it's 2018. Up next, the information security field is booming as companies scramble to find professionals with skills like network defense, malware reverse engineering, and security operations center operator. That's a great thing for professionals who are already in the field, but like so many other things, the fruits of that labor shortage are not spread evenly across our society. Women, racial, and ethnic minorities in particular are underrepresented in the information security field. Black men and women, for example, account for just 3% of information security professionals compared with 12% of the U.S. population. What will it take to increase the share of information security pros who are minorities? If you ask our next interview, rapid Rapid7 CEO Corey Thomas, the answer is that it's not much different than what it takes to create other professionals, strong schools and education, and then mentors who can support and promote young professionals after they leave school. In this next segment, Corey talks about his own path to the information security field and how he went from being an electrician's son to the head of a billion-dollar cybersecurity firm. Corey Thomas, Chief Executive Officer, Rapid7. Corey, thank you for coming on the Security Ledger podcast. Happy to join you. Thank you for having me. February is Black History Month, and we're taking the opportunity this month to talk to some leading figures in the information security field, like yourself, who are black men and women and who all have stories to tell about how they found their way to InfoSec. You are incredibly prominent as the president and CEO of Rapid7, so it's a great place to start. Talk just a little bit about your own background and your own, I mean, you you were a computer science and engineering, electrical engineering major in college. How did you come to that major? How, was that a lifelong interest of yours? Were your parents, your mom and dad in, in technical fields? Like, Take us back. No, so, so there was actually two drivers. One came from my mom, the other came from my dad uh, in lots of ways. So my, my dad was an, an apprentice electrician. And so I got to go on jobs and you know he sort of like wired up and built homes and other stuff. So I was fascinated with like that aspect and the more professional form of that was electrical engineering and not thinking about electrical engineering from the, um, you know, the micro uh, electrical sense that we often think about today. But this was sort of like industrial electrical uh, engineering. Mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. other aspect came from my mom, who had, uh, I would say, the great fear of a bored, mischievous child. Um, and she wanted to occupy my time. And so she had one of her friends who was a teacher of computer technology in a school that my mom worked with teach me sort of like how to program. And the idea was that like, you know, writing my own video games could take up lots of my time. And so uh, as I went to college, I was interested in both of those. And, and it turned out at that point in time, they didn't have computer engineering majors and computer science was actually taught by the math department. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we created our own synthetic degree of sort of like doing electrical engineering and computer science because I was interested in both of those things. I loved and I still love physical structures today and, and, and the way that they actually work and the way you connect them. Uh, and I also love the things that you can actually just do by being able to write and program your own thing. You can create you know, your own worlds just out of your imagination. Uh, and so that's what I studied in, in college uh, then. Now, I probably didn't didn't sort of like stay and become a programmer. It's because as I entered the workforce, you know, one of my 
first managers told me as nicely as could be. He told me I was quite clever at problem solving and creating algorithms, but you know my coding standards weren't just sort of like what they were looking for. And so therefore they were gonna put me in the management and leadership development program. <laughs> Kicking you upstairs. But you have to remember in that point in time, people view sort of like management and leadership development mm-hmm. as places where you put people that didn't have the technical chops. Uh, and so um, that started a whole different path. What was your reaction to that? Well, I thought it was awesome to everyone that told me that, like, you know, that's <laughs> where they actually send you when they don't want you to actually have your hands on the keyboard. <laughs> uh, they think you're smart enough, but they don't want your hands on a keyboard. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I went from like, oh, my God, I'm not nearly as talented. And, you know, everyone has to face that. When you sort of like have this idea of yourself and you realize that the idea you have of yourself doesn't sort of like necessarily face reality. So when you were younger, were, did, did you hang with a bunch of kids who were into computers? Was your cohort all into technology and computers or were you kind of an outlier? I was an outlier. Um, you know, my cohort was into um, sports, you know, basketball, um, football and sort of like imagining what type of cars we were going to have. And so the <laughs> so it, was, it was a pretty it was a pretty solitary affair. Did they know about you that you were really into computers and pretty capable? Yeah, they did. So so it was something that I didn't emphasize that much, but they knew because we couldn't afford our own computer. And so like you know if I wanted to do it, I would have to like you know go to a lab. And you know like mm-hmm. our school we did our school wasn't very wealthy, so like you know there was like one computer for like every 150 kids uh, <laughs> and so, Corey Corey was on it <laughs> exactly so like the so it wasn't a secret from that perspective and when you were getting your start in the technology field what was it like back then I mean already it's a pretty lonely place for people of color it's a it's a field that's dominated by mostly white men um, I can only imagine back then it was at least as bad if not worse yeah, it was. I mean, there was I did not see lots of people like me in technology. But, you know, I had a couple of really, really good mentors mm-hmm. uh, who were able to do like two things that I think are incredibly important. And they were able to provide, you know, what I term today, love and support. They were able to be mm-hmm. supportive and they were also able to push me very, very hard. Uh, some of those mentors were, were older white men. Um, some were um, white women and some mm-hmm. were black men and, and, and women. So at AT&T, I had the opportunity to have a mentor, um, Ann Rafford, who sort of like pushed me hard, uh, and Steve Gronfeld, who pushed me hard. When I got to Deloitte Consulting, I had a host of different uh, mentors there, but I could see a black technology executive like Larry Quinlan, uh, mm-hmm. who was very successful there, and that was inspirational in its own way. Uh, and so, you know, I could see it, I could talk to it, I could get mentorship, but I would say that I had a wide range of people Um, that both supported me and actually pushed me. uh, And that was very helpful. I think it's really interesting that your mom connected you with that high school, that colleague of hers who taught you how to program computers. Do you think that she recognized that computers and technology were kind of the future or was she merely just trying to keep you out of trouble? And that was a that was kind of the path of least resistance. You know, it's it's a great question. Uh, In retrospect, and I'm going to ask her now that you actually mentioned it. Uh, I think she recognized that there was something important in computers because my mom was a uh, was originally a secretary and she was very relevant to change. And she eventually became an HR professional for a large school district. 
um, went back to college. And so uh-huh. she could watch Changes Evolve. And she herself evolved a lot and wrote lots of their changes, wrote lots of those changes. So I would guess, and it's just a guess because I haven't asked her, is that she had an eye out and sort of said, hey, that's relevant. That's going to be important to know. Because that's in many ways how she lived her life. She was constantly reinventing herself and becoming more relevant. You know, we're dealing just industry wide and information security these days with a worker crisis. There aren't enough information security workers to fill the need. And I'm sure at Rapid7, you guys deal with that every day. And B, the workers that are there, there's not a lot of diversity within that pool. So where does that problem start and how do we end it? <laughs> it would be a good good question to ask. Yeah, I think, I think you know, one of the tricks is I think that there's lots of causes and, um, and I think how we end it isn't to focus just on one part of, of the problem. Uh, I think this is one where we have to focus on lots of different parts at one. And the reason I say that is lots of people start with the obvious is that um, they start with education. Um, they start with broader inequality and injustice, which is hugely in- important. My only point is that I would make is that if you actually say, if, if you frame the entire discussion as, as just an educational problem, then that actually passes the bucks, the buck, so to speak, yeah. on the high schools, colleges, and universities and sort of like gives, you know, corporations a pass on actually addressing mm-hmm. the issue. So I, I don't love so much the just looking at it from a like, all right, wh- wh- where does it start? I like to look at, listen, we have a problem today. How do we all contribute to solving it? Which, which I, I think we can do. Because one of the observations that I'd, I'd make is that part of the challenge that we have is that our opportunity, the way that you achieve opportunities in society is a highly filtered system that's highly subject to bias. And so, you know, when you say you're only going to hire people from certain uh, academic institutions and those academic institutions are not diverse in and of themselves, it's quite easy then to say that, well, uh, because the only places that I hire from don't have candidates, then that's not my problem. Those That's those institutions' problems. Without exploring, all right, well, is that truly, is it true that the only way that you can find talented workers is just from those institutions? And I think that that's something that, you know, we ourselves have explored. And the answer is no. We've actually started to bring in people from lots of different um, colleges and institutions that are quite, quite talented that, you know, traditionally in a high tech sector, you know, people wouldn't look at. So I think that's the first thing. Could you give me an example of that? Like what, what, do you, what types of backgrounds, what types of uh, prerequisites are you looking at or have you found success with? Yeah. So we have actually found success with the, You know, there's a there's a program that we actually have that, frankly, just started in Boston called uh, Hack Diversity. But the idea of it was take high aptitude talent that would happen to be at local community colleges or, quote unquote, the non sort of like super prestigious Ivy League. And it's a range of schools there, but typically would not have access to the high tech workforce. If you look at the technology sector, is if it's not one of the top 50 universities, it's unlikely that your resume is going to get attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what we found was that when you actually open the aperture and you start really looking for talent and you focus on talent and not focus on filtering to your convenience, you can actually find lots of talent. It, now, the thing that I would say is that it is more work and it's harder, but that doesn't mean that it's not worth it. So that's just an example of sort of like something that I think every organization can do and embrace. Um, one of the other things that we're sort of like doing right now is also focusing about how we actually develop talent. Because in some ways you think about the talent war and if you're just hiring talent that other people have invested in, then the price of that talent and the cost of that talent goes up. Sure. Um, and, and you missed an opportunity to develop your own talent. So we actually um, just instituted last year an analyst program 
And we took one of our um, young, very talented leaders uh, who happens to be a minority down in Texas, and they actually have put together a program to actually train people uh, and rotate people through different cybersecurity functions uh, um, and get mentorship and oversight to um, so that uh, ensure that we're delivering a great quality of work. Uh, but that's, again, I think an example of a program that we expect to be able um, to leverage to continue to actually add more diversity um, to our organization. And we're looking to expand that into other areas. Yeah, it's fascinating because when you think of when I think of the people I've known in the information security field going back, you know, 15 years and or you look at, you know, kind of um, uh, proto um, uh, hacker groups like um, loft heavy industries in, in Boston, you know, so many of those people had really interesting backgrounds and paths to security, and they were not sort of color inside the lines type people, right? Um, many of them exactly. got in, got into scrapes with the law and were just people who were interested in, you know, exploring the limits of what they could do. But it's not necessarily the type of background that, you you know, you're going to have a 4.0 average and have checked all the boxes on your on your resume. So I wonder if if you find that as well, just looking around you at, at Rapid7, and I guess, how do you formalize that? Like, well, we're looking for a particular type of person who might not necessarily be the type of person who's going to excel academically. In fact, often just the opposite. Yeah, it's interesting because what gets harder is, you know, the way you think about it is the, the default filtering system makes it easy on the recruiters and the hiring um, managers. What we found, though, was that the things that were correlated at least more to our success, and we've done this by trial and error. People that actually are smart, yes, but they actually are creative. And if you think about more creative people, they don't necessarily fit into the cookie cutter mold. And so what that just means is that we actually have to spend more time getting to know people and we have to have a wider aperture that we connect. But we focus much higher. Let's put it this way. There's an unlimited amount of people who can actually today graduate from high school with above a 3.5 GPA and have a good GPA when they graduate college. The number of people, though, who can actually push themselves, deal with adversity, may have a 2.9 GPA, but they actually took hard classes that they were interested in it because they were interested in it. Now, the thing that we're struggling with right now is how to deal with the volume and how to identify those people. And I would say that we have not nailed that, but what we've done is we found lots of partners that we share what we're looking for. And we say, listen, we want people that are smart, but we also want people that are creative. And it turns out that when you tell people sort of like what you're looking for, there's lots of people that are willing to help in the perspective that you provide. I do want to do one other slight aside to that. Is your point about the people come from all sorts of backgrounds, I, I think does hit the other part of something that we need to do is we do have to actually, as a industry and I think as a society, ensure that things that exclude one set of people, like i.e., um, you know, what you go to jail for if you're mm-hmm. a white male versus if you're a minority um, man or woman, that has to be equal because one of the primary things that excludes people from the job market is our judicial system. And our judicial yeah. system has some some noted sort of biases in it. And, and that ties directly to our employment system. And so I, don't, I think it's sort of important that we never forget that there is a direct tie there. Is Rapid7 working on that internally in terms of your own hiring practice? As, as you say, opening the aperture, is that part of it to say, listen, let's let's open that aperture a little bit. This shouldn't necessarily be disqualifying. Let's look at the details of it and also look at the candidate. 
Yeah, so it's, in fact, we actually have a project right now underway, especially for something that's ridiculous, like the um, very minor um, marijuana possession things that are legal now, and we have people selling it. Um, that you know, <laughs> yep. people sort of who were arrested for possession of minor marijuana years ago, excluded from working, and now it's a whole industry now, um, which is just sort of you know a height of, of injustice there. Um, we are actually looking at that right now. The reason I say we're looking at it right now is that we also have partners and we also do work with governments and stuff like that. So there's a complex process to make sure that you're transparent and you're doing the right thing. Um, but doing it right does take a little bit of time. You know, you talked about the education piece of it. Again, yeah, we've tended to look at technology and information security jobs as as highly qualified jobs where you need multiple prerequisites. Is there a way looking at the education system to create programs that could turn out, let's say, low-level security analysts who could then begin working their way up the field. And I guess where does that, you know, our our K-12 through education system is so rigid in some ways. I mean, I guess where do you, where would that fit in or, or how might we do that as a as a state here in Massachusetts or even nationally. Yeah, and I I, I think you nailed it one of the, one of the comments. I do think that our K-12 through education um, system is too rigid. It doesn't leave, I think, a, so there are definitely fundamentals. And I, I would start by saying um, the fundamentals of sort of being able um, to sort of like think critically, um, do the fundamentals of sort of like language communication uh, is hugely important, as well as the fundamentals of nurturing creativity and nurturing interest. And so what I would say is that I think what's important for our K-12 educational system is to have a limited set of fundamentals that they focus on, but also to actually provide the space and time for people to um, be supported in exploring interest, whether they be sort of like technology, cybersecurity mm-hmm. interests, or whether they be creative endeavors. Mm-hmm. I think the notion that creativity doesn't matter and that the arts doesn't matter and that the only things that sort of like matters are sort of like the, you know, reading, writing and arithmetic, so to speak, is I think doing huge damage, um, just as much damage is done by sort of like, you know, the number of kids that we get out of college today who have never gotten a B is just like it's a problem. <laughs> That just means that they're ill-equipped to deal with the reality of life is that basically sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down. Yeah. And so that is one of the things I'm, I'm personally advocating for is how do you actually have less rigid yeah. um, programming in K-12? You're talking to somebody whose daughter, you know, who's who's got, you know, a 4.0 average, you know, got a, got a C in her, you know, BC Calc test last week and, you know, had to be scraped off the ceiling. And, and oh, so that's we, my... Yeah. yeah. I have to say, my daughter is just like, you know, the sky's falling because she has like, you know, a 3.9 GPA instead yeah. of a 4.1 GPA. Yeah. And I just said, like, wh- where did you get the idea that, you know, you're going to take these incredibly challenging courses and that your transcript is going to be a blanket of A's? Like, you know, wh- why why would you assume that at all? And it was, you know, it's just, I don't know where the hell it comes from. But it's just like you're taking really hard either. courses. I actually think it's so good for her to experience that right now so that yeah. she's acclimated to it. So, like, she doesn't enter the workforce. And that's yeah. the first time that she gets a negative piece of feedback. Back at my daughters were in elementary school. I think that they were in third grade, and the the fourth grade class had a had a graphing exercise, and and where they were making um, like bar graphs. And so the question they asked them, and then they graphed it out, was, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" 
And I looked at those graphs and I was like, we're doomed because, you know, the number one was, you know, professional athlete, you know, two was, you know, singer, artist, and I think policeman, fireman was three. And, you know, then it was doctor and, you know, engineer or, or scientist, you know, we're all down kind of in the single digit percentages. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, oh man, we've got a big problem because we <laughs> yep. as a society do not Absolutely. need more professional athletes and singers. Yep. And within within the black community that's an issue as well how do you get visibility and and buzz and celebrity around a person like yourself who is a technology executive people need to see a wide range of role models and i mean that's everything from sort of like business and technology professors to civic leaders which i think do great work to even athletes to including things like artists you could argue today that like sort of like artists it's hard to do unless you come for money. But yeah. I think it's important for people to actually have a wide range uh, of potential role models because I think it demonstrates what's possible. So I think the engagement is hugely important there. Uh, I try to spend time in, in a wide range of communities because of that. But I think it's important for everyone who's uh, engaged to provide sort of like the time, energy and effort so people can understand what they do and what's possible. Are you hopeful for the future? Do you see change? Do you think uh, 10, 15 years from now we'll look back and see a different landscape in the information security field than we see today? Yes, I'm an optimist. I, I will tell you that I've been challenged in the in the last two years as far as sort of like core societal values um, that I hold here. Well, but I don't know I, why, Corey. Exactly. <laughs> um, but but I still am, I still am an optimist when it comes to both technology. Look, there's lots of risks that's actually there, but there's also lots of problems that we know how to solve. There, there's lots of problems that are solvable. Um, and so, what gives me some hope and optimism is that we do have addressable, solvable challenges. Um, we may not have the full answers today, but we can imagine the approaches to those answers, and I think we can create a society that's much more. Um, functional um, and and, um, successful and inclusive than the one that we have today. Corey Thomas of Rapid7, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.